0: Fan. This is my podcast. It's called That's How I Remember It. Each episode, I talk to a creative person about how their memory affects the stories they tell others as well as the stories they tell themselves. Today, I'm joined by a super special guest, Tom Sharpling. Tom is the host and creator of comedy and music show The Best Show, which has run pretty much since 2000, with a couple minor tweaks along the way one of many people in bands who've fallen hard for the best show, which somehow goes down most perfectly when riding in a van between gigs. But its fans are certainly not limited to musicians. There's a very large community of best show listeners who call themselves friends of Tom. It's a truly unique and hilarious show that has spawned some of my all time favorite characters and quotes. Tom has also written for television and in 2021, he published a memoir called It Never Ends. The subtitle of the book is A Memoir with Nice Memories, which makes it perfect to talk about here on this show. Seriously, it's a great book. There's some very interesting parts about Tom getting ECT therapy when he was a teenager, which greatly affected his memory. This was all super fascinating to me. I'm so happy that Tom Sharpling was able to join us here on That's How I Remember It. Here we go. Tom Sharpling, thanks for joining us. and that's how I remember it. Excited to have you here, and I start all these off with the same question, which is this. Do you consider yourself someone who has a good memory? Ah, uh, absolutely not. Um, no. And yeah, I mean, you, you, your book talks about that, but it also you do remember some stuff very well.
1: Yeah, th- there are things I remember, and I've kind of held on to those things and I cashed most of them out in the book. And then there are these just huge swaths of stuff that I honestly do not remember even a little bit. Because in a nutshell, I can tell the audience, mm-hmm. I was a troubled teen, I guess. Not trouble, makes it seem like I was harassing <laughs> people in the 7-Eleven parking lot. I had... Some pretty severe uh, uh, emotional things and, and mental stuff going on. And I it, it spiraled to the point where I ended up, uh, I had to undergo ECT when I was 17. I think it was 17 or, eight, or mm-hmm. just turned 18, whatever, which is the electro electroconvulsive therapy, which is supposed to just clear the cobwebs out and help. And it did help, but it also, I got a very severe side effect from it, which is,
0: so much of my memory was just gone, wiped out. Did they prepare you th- for that? Did they, did they say that might happen? No. I'm, look, maybe they did.
1: It's one of those things that it's hard to say because you're not seeing these doctors forever to say like, hey, I still don't remember the stuff. Because they know that one of the side effects is, is, a, is temporary memory loss. So I'm sure they told me about that but people get different versions of it. I seem to get a uniquely
0: uh, severe version of it. You maintain, though, like incredible pop culture memory. I mean, like I was reading the book again to prepare for this, and you brought up the MTV VJ Smash. I don't remember who that is. You know, there's details throughout your stories that you seem to be able to call up. I think Smash happened after the procedure although okay (laughs) i probably would have gone
1: and gotten it again if i could have forgotten smash um so yeah smash smash was a vj on mtv who was a he clearly was a rock radio dj who they gave a shot to uh, be a vj and he looked like he was in his late 40s and Low and the shock shocker of shockers. Nobody knows who Smash was.
0: No, no, I don't. I didn't. I didn't get that at all. But so uh, you know, and you do have details throughout the book. And I mean, you talk about early music memories. You bring up Dreamweaver and Octopus's Garden. Who sings Dreamweaver? I can't remember. Gary Wright. Gary Wright. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, so, what was? Who I believe
1: the- just passed away. He just oh, died. Was he
0: American? Do
1: you know? I would bet he wasn't because he played on All Things Must Pass, the George Harrison album, which
0: which was recorded in England, I believe. Yeah. Uh, so. So he's a, is, is he guitar? He's a musician of some sort. He was a, a keyboard player. player keyboard yeah. player. Okay. What was the first music you were into that was kind of yours? You know, maybe like something that would repulse your parents, or or just was you know. Uniquely not like something you got, got to
1: the first things that were mine where I was buying records that my parents had no reference point for would have been, um, because they knew even though they were not, they liked music. They just, they were the, of the age that where some people went into the sixties and some people stayed in the early sixties. They stayed with the music when they were young kids, so they they were always more rock and roll fifties type music fans Johnny Cash and Elvis and really didn't follow the Beatles into the deep into the sixties. So when I would buy like a Beatles record, they would still know what that was and they had a reference point for it. They didn't have any idea what Elvis Costello. I bought Armed Forces is one of the first records I bought. Uh, uh Labor of Lust, Nick Lowe was. One of the first records I bought, Parallel Lines, Blondie, was uh, a very early record, and I remember being horrified by the fact that it had a sticker on it that said, featuring the uncensored version of Heart of Glass, which has the, the phrase pain in the ass in it, and I was horrified when I got home and heard it, and I was just like, I need to turn this down whenever I
0: play this, I don't want to get in trouble. That's all pretty sophisticated. I mean, that's all stuff that I'd be proud to put oh, on yeah. today. Those,
1: those re- And they shaped, between those three records and you know, Cheap Trick at Budokan, you throw that in there. It's just like, they were just the building blocks for pretty much everything. It's shocking how informed we are by those records truly for the rest of our lives. You didn't go through a kiss phase then. I didn't. I thought Kiss was stupid, and I thought kids that liked Kiss were stupid. <laughs> it was just. It was very. Look, well, they were like the mean kids at school liked Kiss, so I wasn't one of them. But I also liked plenty of. I I, I was I was so all over the map. Craig with stuff. I would. I can remember going to a record store with Christmas money and buying Emerson Lake and Palmer. Welcome back, my friends, to the show that never ends—the three LP live album. What else did I get? I I probably got a Frankie Goes to Hollywood record and uh, and maybe Metal Circus around wow. that time. <laughs> like I was just—it made zero sense. What what? Because I was reading Rockman, I was reading Cream, and I was reading Rolling Stone, and I would go back at the I would go to the library and comb through the the microfiche to read old issues and just track all this stuff down and it's like but if you wanted to hear the music then you
0: you bought the music or you heard it on the radio i i had had a very similar thing i was going for i didn't have siblings or i have a younger sibling so it was scraps of information anything i could get and um I, you know, but I, th- I also think about that. I was listening to the best show, and you had that amazing question. Do you think Burt Reynolds is into Sticks? Was into Sticks? Sticks, Sticks was my first concert. My first real concert was Kilroy wow. was here. The Kilroy, which,
1: oh my God, you! I wish I <laughs> could see through your eyes, the uh, child, the the young Craig watching them do
0: Kilroy was here. The, that was when they did the whole play? Yeah. Oh, it was like a movie. It was a play. It was the whole thing. And, and, and the best part was that, so I, I I made some deal with my dad. If I get X amount on my report card, you know, you have to take me to the Styx concert. So he, I got to bring two friends and he, we are on an aisle. So he's like, friend, friend, me, my dad. And then, you know, he's sitting next to the unwashed masses on the <laughs> other side. My dad's like this kind of golf kind of guy. And, um, this like really 16 year old girl, um drank a whole bottle of peppermint schnapps next to him wow. and she first she like went crazy and was kind of like trying to chat up my dad it felt like for the first <laughs> and then given the the, the, the type of performance of course there was an intermission at this show mm-hmm. and that's when she threw up and the paramedics came and wow and it was you know it, it felt like rock and roll is the life i want i want that's to be a amazing. part of um, what 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 venue was that St. Paul Civic Center um, sure, you know. So, I I,
1: I remember that was so. Was, was that the first time you saw someone loosely your age get plastered? Yeah, I remember. Yeah, I remember seeing somebody at a. I saw. Bon, I saw the Scorpions with a with Bon Jovi, who was an up and comer, opening at that when when Love at First Bite was out, and I saw somebody doing cocaine off of a tour book, which <laughs> yeah. was one of the most exciting things and terrifying things. Cause I was like a sheltered kid, good kid. And suddenly I'm like, that's cocaine. Yeah.
0: And <laughs> yeah. I mean, you go to those things as a kid and a suburban kid, I was a suburban kid and you just haven't seen some of this stuff. The only other thing that I had right before that is I had gone to a wrestle a pro wrestling match. And that's, I saw a guy drink right out of the bottle <laughs> and I remember thinking like, Whoa, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, How about like, I've been asking everyone this, is there music, do you have like seasonal stuff with music? Like, uh, like, like meaning is is there fall music too? Is there winter music? Is there summer or is it all the same?
1: It's hard. It's hard to say. There's stuff that I feel works in certain seasons, but I almost have my own calendar going on inside of me where I, I cycle through things and go on runs and whenever it makes sense is when it makes sense. But because I can listen to a record and be like, oh, this is like a, this is obviously a summer record, but Mm -hmm. I can listen to it at any point if I'm feeling that that's what I want. But I I can see, I can feel certain vibes coming off things where they clearly like there are winter records and, and yeah. Yeah. So I I get it, but I I, uh,
0: don't abide by it. I tend to I feel like I signed a lot to when I got it and oftentimes that's release date or around release date as I get older but as a kid they everything that was you know older you got mm-hmm. it all at once and sometimes um I I I've, I've, I've had I I think like REM uh reckoning was one that I really assigned to fall and mm-hmm. um I think it came out in the spring and someone else Patterson Hood was the one who says, no that's a spring record you know so um <laughs> How about like? Is there any song or really any piece of art, movie, uh, TV show, whatever? Have you ever had a song or something like that ruined by life events? I mean, the obvious would be like a breakup, but like, is there anything that just like you attach a memory to it and you're like, ah, I don't like it?
1: There are some pretty intense songs that um that I would associate with bad periods, like like when I was at the peak of my uh, depression. Um, a lot of the Depeche mode I was listening to around that point, like w- that was when they were doing albums like black celebration and where it was just, I mean, there was that song, uh, blasphemous, blasphemous rumors, which is just one of the most overly melodramatic things. <clears throat> and I remember, cause it's basically about somebody. Like, the final line is something like, hit by a car, ended up on a life support machine. It's like a bad (laughs) joke in a way. And you're just like, how bleak are we getting here? And But that stuff I associate so much with back then. The uh, Cure album, Head on the Door, was a big one for me. Because I was also seeing, I saw Depeche Mode then, I saw The Cure then. Those were those were big ones then. REM-wise, I would say, uh, what year was Document?
0: 87? 87.
1: Yeah, 87. 80, 86, 87, that was, yeah, that would have been a um, a period of that. I remember Document being a part of a not strong period in my life. <laughs> and so do you, do you avoid that now? Like, if it comes on, are you like, uh? Well, I mean, I would listen to it. I just feel like look the r e m was was everything to me it it just it meant it meant so much to me in so many different ways i think that album unfortunately came out at a point where i was uh really struggling and it just that well, that one would be uh one i wouldn't automatically
0: reach for for a couple different reasons sure that's that um that tour is the I just sort of looked back and re, that was the only time I ever did that thing where you sleep out for tickets. Remember wow. that whole like and mm-hmm. that's that that yeah. that's miserable. Um so the podcast obviously deals with memory and I, I anytime someone has a memoir I'm pretty excited and uh it never ends this couple of years old came out in 2021. It says right on the cover a memoir with nice memories. Some of them are nice, some of them are difficult obviously. Um you know, you mentioned Kelsey Grammer had a book, and you didn't. But I don't think that's quite enough motivation for all the work it takes to write a book. Was it? Was it burning inside you, or, or like, were your friends and loved ones encouraging you to do it? Nobody was encouraging me to do
1: it. It was as, it was just a self, self-set, envisioned top of the mountain type goal that. That's something I want to achieve in this life is to write a book. And I was so reverent with the idea of what a book should be because books have meant so much to me for so long. I just never wanted to write one of those books that was just, and I've read plenty of them that I think are amazing, where it's just funny story, funny story, funny story, funny, like 15, your 15 funniest stories. Mm-hmm. And then you just come up with a title that gives it a loose uh, through line, and that's that. I was just like, if I write a book, I knew for the longest time how I was going to tell the story in the book. I was just like, and there's people could poke through the archives of, of The Best Show, and you would find me saying, you're going to laugh, then you're going to cry, then you're going to laugh again, but you'll be kind of cheering for me at that point. And I was saying with all this hyperbole and stuff, but I kind of knew that that was that I could tell the story in that way. And it wasn't a dishonest way of telling it because it's just like, look, when you bottom out, you bottom out. And sometimes you don't come back from those bottoming outs. And I'm on some level, I'm just on some core level. I'm proud of myself that I didn't, that my life wasn't over when that stuff happened. I clawed my way back to uh, whatever version of, adulthood or normalcy, I mean, those are all relative terms, but it just was like, I got back to where I, where I belonged and, uh, it was just hard to get there, but I did. So I care. I, on, on a, some level, I'm extremely proud of myself for that. And I knew that that would be the way I wanted to tell the book because I didn't want to shortchange this thing that
0: was a real, the hardest thing I'll ever do you know you, you say in the book that you cry easily and i i do too and there was a really moving part in the book about you trying out for the new monkeys and and the reason it's so moving is that it's it's after some of the hospital hospitalizations mm-hmm. and it's it's you know the idea of someone putting one foot in front of the other and trying to you know move forward and it's really touching i mean when you write that you must feel a sense of pride or proud of like doing the work right
1: Yeah, it was the kind of thing where it's like, basically, I had gotten out of the hospital and I was obsessed with the monkeys, and they were kind of providing this enormous amount of comfort for me. They were running the show on MTV Mm -hmm. and the records were, I was buying the records wherever I could find used albums and it just meant, it was such a positive, fun thing that it really was helping me and then there was this announcement on MTV. It's like audition for the new monkeys at this point. I had no, I had no idea what I could have ever done. I was not an actor. I barely played bass guitar, but something in me made me go to the thing. And of course, big spoiler. I didn't get the job, but when I, and for the longest time in my life, I looked at that as like, Oh my God, that's an embarrassing thing. That's one of the ones that everybody is going to laugh at. But then I kept working it in my head and I was like, well, of course, people can laugh at it. I laugh at it, the ridiculousness of it, of taking New Jersey Transit into Penn Station, lugging a bass guitar around Manhattan, going to this thing, and they spot it from a mile away. It's like, nope. That's It's funny. <laughs> but it also really was. I'm, I, I really appreciate you recognizing that. That was one of the moments where I found a little bit of, um, just a little bit of kindness for myself and tried to understand what was actually going on in my brain when I did that. Not just like with all the four, all the hindsight and you can laugh at, oh, what a dumb kid I was. It's like, no, I was really trying. I just was trying. I was trying to just do anything to just not be where I was. And I didn't know what to do, but I was trying things and it's a, it was a pretty, it's a pretty profound thing when I look back at it, with that uh, in that that point of view informing it, because that was exactly what was going on. And I don't, I just don't feel like beating that kid up past a point.
0: Yeah, no, I, it's beautiful, and I, I really related. I mean, uh, in 2013, my mother passed away, and I was a, uh, I remember Angie, my partner, was like, you know, after a while, said, you can't. I think days were kind of flying by. I was depressed or anxious, or whatever, grieving, really. Mm-hmm. She said you just can't you you got to like walk out the door. And I don't care where you go, but just just get outside. And and I started taking these really long walks. And one day I was all the way up, I live in Brooklyn, I was all the way up on the Upper West Side, and I ran into someone I knew and I kind of felt like I was busted because they were like, what are you doing? And I was like, I I, I don't know. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm just walking all the way up here. But when I look back, it was great advice because it was trying to push forward in some way, however painful it was at the moment. Absolutely. And there is that, like, when my father passed away,
1: I had commit. I didn't know what to do then Then night we had a a service in the morning and I was just like well what do I do with the rest of my day am I just supposed to just stay in the house and cry and I just didn't feel like doing that but I didn't know where to go and then I ended up going to um this this show that I was supposed to be on the bill of this talk show that Kevin Corrigan was doing in lower Manhattan and I was just like I'll do it. What, what else? It's just like, if anybody would say like, well, that's not what you're supposed to be doing. It's like, there are no rules for any of this stuff. It's just like anybody who tries to say, well, this is how you grieve. This is how you mourn. This is how you get through this. People get through it, how they get through it. And there's no right or wrong way to, well, there, every way is the right way. If it, I would say that if it works for you, it's the right way. as long as you're not
0: harming yourself to get through it, but. Hey, I'm Craig Finn. Here on That's How I Remember It, we often talk about music. So I wanted to mention DistroKid and their new app for iPhone and Android. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy, with unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100% of their royalties and earnings. Over a million artists rely on DistroKid to get their music into Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. With this app, you can sign up and pay for a new DistroKid account, or sign into an existing one. You can upload new releases. You can get notified when you've earned royalties, edit your account details, check your streaming stats, add lyrics and song credits, edit release metadata, and so much more. The DistroKid app is now available on iOS and Android. Go to the app or Play Store to download it. Some of this kindness you're talking about, to me, is part of the the tone of the best show Is really interesting is like, almost in the same sense, like we listen to sad songs, but then, you know, they make us sad. But then if you listen to sad songs in a room with, you know, fellow music fans, it, it kind of is an acknowledgement that we all get sad. We all struggle. We all suffer. And you share some stuff on the show sometimes that's self depreciating, something that you might like made you cringe about yourself. And it ends up being really helpful in some way. Um, you know, I, I, I relate to it and it helps me kind of forgive myself sometimes. And, I suspect other listeners get out of it as well. I mean, think about like you know you have the the story about uh, asking Patty Smith if she saw humble pie, but there's this other one that I don't know. I, I don't know if you'll even remember this because it's like eight years. It's a long time ago. And you said you were looking for a Starbucks, and I think a cop or someone. You said, and you said, "Yeah, I'm trying to find the Starbucks." Yeah, some guy wants me to meet him there, as if you wouldn't have gone there on your own. And I was like, "Oh." That's something that would be in my head for two weeks. And, you know, the the fact that you've voiced that is helpful. I don't know what's
1: going on with that stuff where I'm not. It's something I work on a lot now. I can just say that. It is something I talk about in therapy a lot is this thing that you, if you live a certain kind of life and you keep going down a certain road, you think you don't have permission for just about anything. Like, you can get to the place where I don't have the right to, to need this, want that, ask for that, and it's a really unhealthy thing. It's one of the bigger things I still uh, wrestle with is the idea of just being, being allowed to want and need certain things and to express that. I don't have... I would forever, as, as somebody who slides into a caretaker, codependent role in life, and that's something I've also worked on a bunch, it's when you, when you start seeding your needs because somebody else has greater needs, that's a very real thing. If somebody's sick and you just want to go to the movies, them being sick does trump you wanting to go to the movies. That's how that works. But if that keeps going and then if in my head I think, well, I don't deserve to go to the movies or I don't deserve anything and I just, all I should do is help anybody no matter what they're going through, that's where it's really unhealthy. And that's where I have ended up uh, in the past is just in that caretaker role where you're doing it because that's what you do, not because it's what you want to do. And that's why it would, at its worst, I would not even be able to, for example, ask somebody that, hey, I want to go to Starbucks. Like, some cop says it. Who cares? Like, what do I care what a cop thinks of anything, especially when I'm going, especially where, why why this guy wants to go to Starbucks? Who cares? Just tell me where it is. I would tell you where it is. Like, it just. (laughs) It's a it's a it's an ongoing thing, and I'm doing a, I'm doing a lot better with it. I can say things out loud that I need and want, but it's not my default setting by any stretch. But I'm glad I'm so glad that me, you caught that, and that a part of the show that is so meaningful to me to get to do it is that it's like I do think there's a chance to demystify certain things that just because I have this thing that has reached whatever level of success or awareness it is, it doesn't mean I'm exempt from anything in life. Like literally I don't get a pass outside of being able to get on a guest list or maybe get a free record here and there or a, or a link to a movie that's not out yet outside of those things. I I don't get a pass on Virtually anything because of that, whatever you would call it, status or I I hate the fame is not what it is, but you get what I'm just like awareness is how I think. And I, I like leaning into that on the show to just let people know. It's like, I'm dealing with this stuff every day still, and you're not alone with it. Don't think you're the only one dealing with it. You like my show. I'm dealing with it as much as you are. So and that's like the subtext to so much of the show. Um,
0: so it means a lot that you pick up on those things because they are there. Even the title of the book, It Never Ends, kind of speaks to that. I mean, you know, but like that that's that's interesting because the best show's tone is it's 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 as I analyze it, it's both aggrieved and really positive. And somehow they're I don't know. I mean, are you, are you, when you go in to write the show or do the show, are you aware of that balance? Are you trying to hit that balance?
1: Absolutely. That is, that is exactly what it is because in real life I'm aggrieved and positive. It's like, (laughs) I, and I think sometimes it's that thing and you tell me where you're at with something like this. It's just like, I feel like Look, there are people who are negative and they're just negative and they see the dark they see the the cloudy side of everything and they just think life sucks. And then there are other people who are aggrieved or neg or or moaning or whatever you want to call it, grouchy. Whatever you can th- throw at me, a crab apple. But I do feel like it's because I know how things could be. And I it's my it's my optimism that is consistently getting get, getting crushed. <laughs> and it comes out in that way. It comes out as being a crab
0: apple. <laughs> I get it. I totally get it. I mean, I'm an optimist too, but I, I mean my, my my partner Angie we left a restaurant a few years ago and she just turned to me and said, I don't think they're doing their best. <laughs> and I think that, that that's that's uh, sort yeah. of what I feel is at the crux of it. Like, like, like I don't know. I think I know how good it could be, um, mm-hmm. if we, you know. But, but yeah. Um, so the other thing about the best show, like, I was I was thinking about it as a culture, we don't, you know, we as a culture, Americans, we don't go to church anymore, uh, which which a lot of us don't particularly miss. I think you grew up loosely Catholic, or at least culturally Italian. Um, Mm -hmm, I know you did go see, I knew you did see Rocky Horror and uh, both the church and Rocky Horror are are groups people find community and ritual and part of this community building. And so your show comes on Tuesday. Fans know there's going to be a Worcester call. There'll be some things that entertain everyone, but maybe some inside baseball for the serious listeners who are called the Friends of Tom. And um, on a business side of things with like Patreon and all that, it's obviously you pay attention to that. But does the community of it all go beyond it I mean i are, are, are you you must be intensely aware of, of this listenership you've built yeah i am it's
1: it's I'm always it sounds like some like some uh hokey show busy thing but i I'm always touched by it that anybody knows what the show is and it sounds like it sounds like I'm being like some kind of false humility I swear it's not cuz everybody has a million things they could be putting their uh, focusing their attention on and that if i do i get to do this thing that people care about it's just it's just like it's the biggest gift you could get that people are willing to say i'll spend 3 hours of my time listening to what you do and they're like entrusting me with that. So that's one of the things that keeps me like wanting to, aside from my own personal pride in the show, just wanting to stay ahead of the audience and knowing when it's time to change, but keeping things, whatever, wherever we go, it needs to be at the the highest level I can achieve. I I don't want to. I don't want to plateau or have stretches where it's just like, well, this is a real bad run of shows, really uninspired. It's like, it's up to me to stay inspired because I I don't take it lightly that people care. That's it's, it's still shocking to me. The, the more, the more kind of like self self flagellating side of me would say, I don't deserve any of it, but that's, that part gets smaller and smaller, thankfully. And now I just feel like it's like, look, no, I do deserve it because I do work hard on it. So that's why I deserve it. If I was phoning it in and these shows were awful, then I'd be like, well, this is like the cult of personalities getting me over the hump here. And I know I'm not doing my best work, but I can look myself in the mirror and be like, no, this is a show that I feel if you, if it was the kind of stuff you're interested in, you should listen to it. You, I have I, I, earned the right to that and I'm a, I'm aware of the audience and I'm very touched by it and it's not the look you and you and I have something very much in common with that where it's just like are are we doing the biggest thing it's like no we're we're
0: we're not that's yeah. You know, I I hope I didn't no, no. no, no. bubble there. I I say it's a small flame that burns very hot.
1: But that's the thing is like the intensity and the engagement from the audience, I would put it against anybody else's thing to be just like my, the people that like the show, they are in and I want to take care of them because they care so much and it makes me care so much. It's just like, it's not a passive thing where it's like, there are musical acts that people that are huge, Mm -hmm. but then people just can take it or leave it. But, and then there are groups that are uh, operating on a, on a smaller uh, plane and their fans would take a bullet for the band. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: And that's, that's, it's the same with my show. It's the same with your music we have that level of dedication. I'll take, if you're able to carve out some sort of thing where it's like, I'm not losing money on this. I get a little bit of money from it and I get to do what I want and people like it. It's like, that's an amazing deal versus a thing that would be, oh, I'm getting more money for it. But this audience looks glassy eyed and and, like, they could they could just as well be home watching TV. It's just like, well, I'll take the people who are into it every time.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it. yeah, it's absolutely that. And, you know, music, you guys have always had uh, a strong relationship with Best best Show of Music. You're obviously a huge music fan. You did the fanzine before the radio. And Worcester's obviously a touring musician. Mm-hmm. There's something about this show that seems to especially caught on with musicians. And I know, I mean, the, the – listening to the best show in the van, I think is is, a tour van is, is, is a thing. I mean, I, I know many, many musicians that are big fans. Um, were you, was it conscious at some point that you realized this was taking off with bands and musicians or was it just natural due to who you guys knew and who you hung out with?
1: No, it was surprising. It was incredibly flattering when we first heard this is pre best show. I was just doing a radio show on WFMU, which was a music show that had calls. And if the balance was 90% music, 10% talk, eventually it it became 50-50 and then probably more like 75-25 talk to music. Eventually the balance it was what I was more interested in was taking calls. And then John and I, John Worster and I decided to, take a crack at him calling in as a fake character and we had so much fun and thankfully we recorded it that night that tape we did two calls one was called rock rotten rules the first thing we ever did it's kind of it's kind of amazing that's also the thing so many people know us for now i know what like don mcclain feels like where he's (laughs) like first one out of the box is the one everybody knows and then it's just like well we still do other things you know it's like no, no, rock run, run. Um, so our first two calls got John edited them, edited them down and started making dubs on 90-minute cassettes. And those tapes started circulating. This is pre-streaming, pre-podcasting, late 90s, early 2000s. And then we just start getting these things. It's just like Robert Pollard is playing the thing all the time, and this one's playing, and then that and and it was just like what a like what a weird great compliment to get that it's like these bands that are suffering in a van going coast to coast with making the music that's my favorite music also just indie indie musicians are playing this this tape and that's helping them get through the the uh the drudgery of being in a van for hours. And then when the best show became like a podcast in 2005, then hearing about bands being just like, I don't know what I would do. It's the only thing we agree on. (laughs) It's just like, I'm in a band, not naming names. We, we agree on nothing except listening to best show. And it's, (laughs) it's kind of a gift for us.
0: Because it, it gives us a thing we have commonality on. It's also everyone stops talking and listens because it's, you know, I think it, 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 it requires paying attention. I think that there's a nice meditative feeling in the van uh, mm-hmm. as, as you roll down the road and listen to it. And there's world building, you know. I mean, like if if you become – you, you might get something, you know, if you've been listening for 100 episodes that you might – yeah
1: you it's it's the kind of show where there's been p- people are just like I don't get it. I don't get it. It's like well just to give it hang around a little bit longer and if you don't like it then by all means move on but it doesn't it's not an instantaneous thing that reveals itself from the first second people are like why is this guy taking so many pauses? Why is he, I didn't understand that joke or that reference. It's like, look, the, the secret to the show is I'm the only one that gets 100% of the references. I guarantee everybody's going to be excluded from one of the references at some point. Cause I'm just talking about the things I know and it's, that's exclusive to me. Uh, so everybody's going to come up light at some point or another and be like, I don't know anything about whatever you're talking about, some weird TV show or some, or the people that know the TV shows are like, I don't know what you're talking about when you start talking about, you know, Noi. And they're like, I don't know what that is. And like, so the people who know Noi are like, I don't know what you talk about when you talk about basketball. And it's just so everybody, I'm I being pretty honest about the things I'm interested in, and I talk about them, assuming that
0: not everybody can hang with all of it. Yeah, you've had you've had a lot of musicians on, and I know you know a lot of musicians. Who do you think is the funniest musician? I mean, well, it's John Worcester the. Oh funniest yeah, sorry, I, I have to exclude that's, him.
1: No, excluding John. Yeah, that's well. Now the, no offense to you and everyone else who makes music. There's a gap now between because John look (laughs) yeah John it's criminal how funny John is when you think of how outstanding a drummer he is like he's top of form top of the game for two uh, different mediums it's Bo Jackson he he really is (laughs) he is like Craig he's Bo Jackson (laughs) He, I would put him against any funny person who makes their living being funny. John's funnier than all of them mm-hmm. and then he also is just like this killer drummer who just consistently impresses me with that also it's just it's
0: it's slightly unfair.
1: Most people only I'm,
0: get to be really good at one thing,
1: yeah, so the funniest I don't know, I think Kurt vile is really funny in. Because he's funny, because he's funny as he's as, he's as true to himself when he's being funny. The Kurt that comes on the best show and talks is Kurt. That's he's not, there's no affectation. There's no anything he's, that's the same guy. When you talk to him one-on-one in private, same guy, one-to-one ratio no affectation or or presentational part he is he is who he is and he just i find i find him just endlessly funny and he's also funny because he's such a sweet good guy which is they go hand in hand um yeah. who else Chris Murphy from Sloan is really funny um yeah there's there's a bunch but those are two good ones.
0: The, the, the one I thought of that that maybe is, is again cheating is is uh Fred Armison. But you know, when his, yeah. his first band trenchmouth, I used to play with mm-hmm. in my first band, the all those guys were funny. He was like, you know, like like they would they would do these skits that were um really elaborate and awesome and um but but really all of them were or, or most of them. Um yeah, no, I love Fred and I would still say at this point Fred has
1: Fred, look, I've seen Fred drum 50 times, but he's like, Fred's a comedian who drums yeah. now. Yeah. John is a 50-50 split down sure. the middle. It's So it's just like he's, John is like this
0: hybrid that I don't see anybody else doing exactly what he's doing. Here's, here's a, something I wanted to ask. Do you, so when you go to a show and a lead singer says something, have you noticed this? And everyone laughs, even if it's not funny. Oh. Have you noticed that what what is that and what, could you have any explanation for why that happens is that nervous laughter
1: No I think people are well people are charmed by musicians especially if they're at the show they're already predisposed to want to like anything they do mm-hmm. and so they're they're in they're they're kind of in the tank already right off the bat if if somebody is saying a thing that feels like you got to hear something spontaneous or something that was it's just your moment now now you had a moment that that isn't they're not doing that moment every night if it's if it's something off the cuff everybody feels like it's a special moment and i mean it's for it's the same and there's also just people are like a musician is not automatically supposed to be super funny So the, the, the bar is set lower in terms of if a musician, um, or an actor for that matter, like a, like a, if an actor starts saying something really funny that is clearly spontaneous and original, not in performance, it just, um, everybody spots them a little bit of, of, uh, of whatever to where they'll round up on it and be like, that was hilarious when it just like, well, I said like, I did this, I did Doug Benson's podcast a million years ago. And, um, John ham was on the panel with me and in the room, I knew I was being funnier than him, but He's John Hamm and he's so charming. It felt like now I understood what the Nixon Kennedy debates in nineteen sixty <laughs> were like, where everybody's like, Oh, everybody who watched it on television liked Kennedy and Nixon was all sweaty and stuff, and and but people listened on the radio thought Nixon won the debate. And I'm just like, I get it. I understand <laughs> Richard Nixon for the first time in my life cuz I'm laying it out there I'm saying this I'm saying that and people are going like
0: ha, 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 like and then John Hamm says like uh well blah 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 blah, and it, Wah! so one thing I loved in the book one small thing was that you mentioned going to see um Tad the the sub pop <laughs> band Tad and and yeah. and the, having them kick Nirvana's ass and the reason I loved it is my good friend Michael Han wrote his first concert review ever when in England, and they and he said Nirvana was bad. Tad is you know uh, is is rocketing towards the top. Michael ended up the music editor at the Guardian, so it's a you know mm-hmm. a, a, a informed opinion. What all of which is to say, I want I know you read a lot of rock books, and I wonder if you could if tell me what you think is a very good rock book and a very bad one. Wow. Um,
1: Very good one. I I always go back to Shaky, the Neil Young book Mm -hmm. that Jimmy McDonough wrote about 20 years ago, Mm -hmm. because it's a biography that was authorized that became very not authorized when Neil got mad at Jimmy McDonough. And so he's interviewing Neil, asking him these questions, and the r- relationship is changing during the book, which gives you as much insight into who Neil Young is as any of the stories that actually happened in the past is how he's currently interacting with the author of this book. You realize, yeah, Neil's all over the map. He can, the drop of a hat, he can he can turn on you and... That was, uh, I think that's kind of the gold standard in a lot of ways. And man, what's a bad rock book? Um, ironically, well, I want to, I don't want to say one of Neil Young's books, ironically, (laughs) would be like his books, they're not bad, they're just like he. This is when I wrote my book, I saw the beginning, middle, and end with it. I don't think Neil did when he wrote. The couple few books he wrote, mm-hmm. he just it, it's extreme of consciousness, which is perfectly fine. Um, but it's it's just you're reading Neil's finally opening up, and he keeps talking about these cars running on like these like <laughs> self-sustainable cars and, and model trains and all that. Like, it's like tell me about making on the beach. Like, tell, tell me something about that. Not, you know, so I, I thought his book was frustrating. I get why I get who he is and why that's, of course, that's the book Neil Young would write. So it's not bad in the purest sense,
0: but it's, um,
1: it's, it's, it's just very frustrating.
0: I, 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 even within the same band, I've found like the the highs and lows of Paul Stanley's, I think, is one of the best books, the face of music. <laughs> and Peter Chris's is easily one of the worst. Peter
1: um, Chris's book, <laughs> John and I have talked about that for hours upon hours. The stories in Peter Chris's book, where he basically tells a story about a band, a band he was in getting kidnapped twice like they got held at gunpoint or something in some guy's mansion and then they got out and then they got back in and he did it again it was like no Peter Chris's book he's also so whiny in that book it's exhausting what a I'm Kiss is one of John's all time fascinations I'm Mm -hmm. incredibly fast I could never be as fascinated by Kiss as he is or was but some of the stuff I could I could read about bands that I do not like so much more sometimes than bands I do like. Like it uh like I mean I've read Frank Zappa books and I don't like Frank Zappa, but it's an interesting he's such an interesting character that it's compelling and it's it goes beyond the music.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, so I got speaking of a I got one more question, I'm gonna let you go. Um you wrote this book. You started in 2017. It came out in 2021. When you published one book, is it is it like, oh, now I need to do an update on what, everything that's happened since, or or do you see yourself writing another one soon? Yeah, I do want to write another
1: book. I know what it would be. It would not be another memoir type book. It would have a more of a, a a different kind of engine in it. It's not fiction, but. It would be about me living my life and doing certain things at this point in my life. Mm-hmm. That's, I know that's very vague, but it's like, it would be more um, participatory journalism, I guess is the best way to describe it. You, I'm telling you
0: something, I've never told anybody this out loud, so. Scoop. There it is. What a scoop. You heard it here first. Participatory journalism, we look forward to that. Great guest, I love that conversation. A huge thanks to Tom Sharpling for taking the time, being open and honest and engaging. Check out The Best Show at thebestshow.net. Tune in every Tuesday, it's always great. Now, me, I'm going on tour, leaving shortly for the U.S. dates with the Mountain Goats and Bully, then to UK and Dublin in mid-February. On March 2nd in London, the moth club we'll be doing a live version of this very podcast it's gonna be great i'll be joined by matt osmond the bassist and a founding member of a legendary iconic british rock band suede so cool also scott levine my tour mate uh, for that tour and support act we'll also be getting in the guest chair for a bit he's hilarious it's gonna be really fun it's gonna be a stellar afternoon you should join us podcast taping is the afternoon at the moth club that evening there's a show Um, Get all the details at craigfinn.net. Shows are starting to sell out in the UK, so make sure to get your tickets soon. I really appreciate listening. Thanks for making the time. We have so many great guests coming up in future weeks on this podcast, so keep tuning in and subscribe. I'm Craig Finn, and that's how I remember it.